Welcome to Out of the Blank. Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. I'm here with David. David, for the audience who doesn't know who you are, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, well, back in the 1960s, I was a teenage ufologist that I was completely convinced that UFOs were real and that it was my destined task to solve their mystery. I grew up to become a professor of religious studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. My area of expertise was Judaica, but my field of special interest was religious traditions of heavenly ascensions and otherworldly journeys. In other words, UFOs in a more academically respectable guise. Would it be fair to say that, because um, you, like I said, I told you off air, you have probably the most interesting perspective on UFOs. Usually everyone thinks like it's real or people trying to debunk them, but you look at it as more of a mythical aspect. Like it, would you say it would be more religious, like they're kind of something from another place? Well, I don't think they're from another place. I think they're from within us, which I suppose we could envision as another place, since it seems to me that the depths of our psyches are a very mysterious territory. Uh, I certainly think they're religious. I think that uh, a UFO encounter can be a bona fide religious experience. And I think that UFO lore is a religious myth of tremendous power and profundity. Yeah, I've heard a lot of um, experiencer stories. I don't know how far you've gone or talked to how many people have experienced one of these, but I wouldn't call them abductions. I call them encounters. Um, they have a sense of euphoria to them during the experience, something that's kind of hazy and not really, it's very, very vivid, um, especially it gets harder for them to really remember certain details as time goes on, um, which I, I, I guess I'm, I, I, I'm so curious on the religious aspect, like from going from a teenager who was a UFOologist, then getting into religious studies, is that when the transformation kind of changed your mindset, I would say? Well, I think very slowly, I came to realize that we're not really being visited from outer space. But I never lost the sense that there was something powerfully important in UFOs. 
which had attracted me as a young boy, which continues to cast its spell over me, and which certainly casts its spell over millions of people, as we've seen over the past couple of years where UFOs fill the internet. So, and it seemed to me really important to explore just what this spell was. Yeah, how can people manifest something that can be captured on, I mean, I wouldn't even say a good video, um, just on a phone in general. There's so many more encounters now, even uh, the NASA director speaking out about trying to find our origins on another planet. Um, it, it, for me, I always thought it was a weather phenomena. Um, I've been kind of dipping back and forth between that perspective of ball lightning or some type of reaction or something based on human creation, I would say. I mean, climate change or pollution. Eventually, you heard of mirages before. I thought this was some type of mirage, but um, so many people believing in it more and more and the number of encounters that keep going up. It's kind of like um, if you've ever heard of Slender Man, there was a creepy pasta forum where a bunch of people believed in something and then they thought they manifested it or created it so maybe the amount of people believing into ufos and researching more into ufos might have manifested something is that kind of what you're talking about yeah i think it's showing something about our society something about our anxieties look i mean i'll tell you what you know the the this what the ufos meant to me i i mean because in retrospect I can see it quite clearly that for most of my childhood and adolescence, my mother was slowly dying of a heart condition. And the UFOs were for me a representation of that alien presence that had invaded our house that could not be spoken of because there was kind of a taboo against the three the three of us my parents and me talking about what was plainly happening to my mother so kind of like as your mother was sick and dying um, the UFO subject was, you, would you say that's kind of like the demon of the house? It's not really, it's not talked about, but it's not like, because people listening are going to think that like you're like the aliens are visiting you and they caused your mother to get sick, but you're more talking about it's like a manifested demon or some type of um, evil, I would say. Yeah, I mean, there was, look, we, we do not have to posit UFOs coming from outside to use them as a metaphor for the sense of being invaded by death. What they provided me as a teenager was a mirror in which I could control, at least in my imagination, that unstoppable thing that was coming to the person I most loved in the world. I mean, I use the, I think in terms of myth a lot because I believe that 
myth is real, myth is true, and that myths speak the truth, and that the myth that spoke the truth speaks the truth now to me about what I experienced was that of Perseus and Medusa, that Perseus is able to fight back at this creature whose sight turns people to stone by looking at her in a mirror and through that mirror struggling against her. For me, the UFOs were a mirror in which I could deal with my mother's death. And as it turned out, I couldn't prevent it. All of my ufological researches couldn't stop her heart condition from worsening. But it did keep me sane in the process. How do you um explain, like, I guess probably the most common, or not common, most popular encounter, which would be the UFO, um, Roswell incident are you because the way I'm trying to examine your perspective and think in that mindset is like I mean people are already wondering what else is out there or like belief that there's another beings coming to this planet so I thought it was a weather balloon but people's people see what they want to see they want to see so they're gonna their brain's gonna make things fall into the category of alien that's why there's still people that believe that it was an alien crash rather than a weather balloon yeah the I mean, Roswell is an incredibly complex issue, and I don't know how much time you want to spend on it. Uh, let's put it this way. Something did come down on Mac Brazel's ranch outside, uh, outside of Roswell sometime presumably in June 1947, though we don't know exactly when. What that thing was that came down, we don't know for sure. It was originally said to be a weather balloon, then later explained as the balloons connected with a top secret project called Project Mogul, which was supposed to monitor Soviet nuclear explosions. Uh, the... I always found the mogul explanation fairly attractive, but it does have some fairly se serious problems at the same time that we can talk about. Originally, there was no mention of alien bodies being found in connection with the debris. It was just debris that you know, the stuff was put pieced together with scotch tape, whatever it was, it was clearly not an intergalactic spaceship. And after it was dismissed by the military as a weather balloon, it sank into obscurity for the next 30 years. It was only in 1978 that it resurfaced and accumulated a mass of stories by people who claimed to remember seeing not only a crashed spacecraft or a crashed disc, 
but the corpses of small humanoids inside it. Now, this is what transforms Roswell from a banal mystery of fallen debris into a profound myth of mortal divinity, which has come to be recognized, I would say the world over, I, the, way, the, the way the most familiar fairy tales have come to be recognized. And I would need to take that as a myth, even though it has a kernel of historical fact and try to interpret it as a myth. What does it mean if we believe not only that extraterrestrials have visited this earth, but that they have come to grief on this earth, that they've been shattered, that they've been partly devoured by animals, which is part of the Roswell story, and that they themselves are frail, childlike beings with outsized heads and spindly bodies. What does it mean that we believe these things? And to me, the crux of the myth is death, a wrestling with our own death, both as individuals and as a species. Because Roswell, the, the, the kernel of Roswell, the beginning of the UFOs as a cultural phenomenon dates from 1947, which was when we were beginning to grasp that the collective death of our entire species was a possibility. Do you think that they would be harmful though? It seems like with a lot of people involved in the religious community, at least that I've talked to who do kind of talk about the UFO topic, it seems like if aliens exist, there's a possibility that they may have created us rather in a sense of another being that created us. Because if there's this life out there, then there has to be life on other planets. Does that mean, you know what I mean? It's like, it gets into this weird kind of discussion about it. Um, I'm trying to really put myself in a more of a religious aspect, which I'm not, but I'm trying to put myself more in a religious aspect to understand, which I could see from a, a white light, all these encounters come from like a white light beaming down from the sky. That sounds a lot like a heaven type thing to me and being carried off into somewhere else. But with all these common UFO discussions that get brought about, uh, especially the government now looking for extraterrestrial life and Avi Loeb seeing this long pencil shaped, um, he would call debris from a lost civilization. It brings into more of a question on the basis of evidence rather than belief now, because if we're having this type of evidence, I don't, I mean, I don't know, I'm not trying to be conflicting here, but I'm trying to bring up the other perspectives that I've heard where for, like I said, for me, I, I don't know, I'm open-minded to everything. Um, but when it comes to this topic right now, it's just something where it's like, we having government funding being pushed towards it. We're having government talking about it openly to the public where everyone has a curiosity. Now, is there something bigger than us? And 
the relig like that's why I said yours was an interesting perspective because I've never really heard it from a religious aspect of things or a folklore aspect, which makes sense. I mean, there's a fairy thing that gets linked in there as well too. People talk about the the little uh, orbs of light, possibly fairies. I mean, that makes sense. And and little men have been known from traditions connected with fairies, elves, leprechauns for centuries. These things are, are clearly related to UFOs, and I think are the context in which we have to place the UFOs. Look, I can look back to two, uh, let's say two books, two writers, two thinkers who've inspired me particularly. The first is Carl Jung, who published uh, in 1959, a book called Flying Saucers, A Modern Myth of Things Seen in the Skies. And for Jung, myth is not falsehood. It's not bunk, the way we often use it. Myth is something tremendously important as a kind of collective dream of the human species. And when Jung saw a myth being created in, in the space age with a space age guise, he said, aha, we're dealing with something really vital coming from the human unconscious. And Jung is, let's call it him, the first of the two people who influenced me. The second is Jacques Vallée. Are you familiar at all with him and his work? Yes. Yeah, that, he, that in 1969, he published a book, Passport to Magonia, in which he brought the UFOs, as I've just done, into the context of fairy lore, elves, leprechauns, who sometimes kidnap people as the UFOs abduct people. And he saw all of these as testimonies to some realm which he called Magonia, which is earthly, which interacts with our world, but isn't quite our world. Now, I think Valet went too far, okay? Because I don't believe that this realm of Magonia actually exists as an objective entity, the way, the way Valet believed it did. I would go much more back to Jung and see this as something like the collective unconscious. But I think these are the lines on which we are to understand the UFOs and why we're so fascinated with them. I mean, not to say that you were wrong when you say they're atmospheric phenomena or weather balloons or I would add uh, jets seen at a distance and misinterpreted and so on and so forth. I think all of these are real as triggers for UFO experiences. But I think the essential UFO is something that rises from within us at these triggers. Am I making sense here? Yeah, I'm just, 
the, see, the mind is so fascinating to me, the things that we can do with it, um, the things that we can really do within ourselves, which I, it's like I said, I'm, I'm not, I don't think you're wrong at all. I think, like I said, I'm open-minded to a lot of this stuff as well. So you have to be, especially if you're talking about the UFO topic, but it's, it, it just, it boggles me because I can't say like, we're like, you know, oh, that's not, that's not true because I don't know what our minds can do. Most of the encounters that are uh, experiences that people see happen late at night when they're in their room or something like that. Talk about being picked up out of their bed. Well, when you're hallucinating or when you're um, seeing shadowy figure syndrome, which our eyes are known to do, that's stuff that's incredible. Sleep paralysis can create a bunch of different things as well, too. I'm, I don't know if it, I'm not in the belief that it physically manifests something i think your brain just your memory is such a fragile thing where if you already want it to be something you're going to end up seeing that thing even though it might not physically actually be in front of you you're just kind of funneling it you can call it creativity you can call it imagination um i'm wondering what evidence or not i wouldn't even say evidence but what examples could you give me to help me i guess um get a better grasp of your understanding of the topic okay let's I'm going to give you three examples. And it's going to be the famous William Booth Gill case in Papua New Guinea in June of 1959. It's going to be the fountainhead of all the abduction stories, which is the experience of a New Hampshire couple, Betty and Barney Hill, in the early 1960s. And it's going to be the sighting by one of the most famous men in the world, John Lennon, the ex-Beatle, yeah. in 1974. Okay, and let's look at those, we'll take those sightings, one, those encounters, one by one, okay, and see what we can learn from them. Seem like a good plan to you? Sounds good to me. You're the captain. Well, it's full speed ahead, then. <laughs> Okay, that in June of 1959 in Papua New Guinea, and it's worth remembering that we're in the Southern Hemisphere now, so June is now the depth of winter. Uh, an Anglican priest named William Booth Gill and his Papuan flock witnessed jointly the advent of a number of flying disks. They came through the clouds, hovered over the mission. Men came from inside one of the disks and walked upon its deck. I say men because in every respect, these figures looked like male human beings with only one oddity. They were luminous. They shone of their own light. They were not little men. They, you know, we, we, we impose that, that category on them, but uh, the way Gill described them was they were full human beings. And this was witnessed by Gill himself and by some 25 of the Papuans who were with him. 
Uh, and lest you imagine who the people we're dealing with were impressionable primitives of some sort, they were in fact well-educated, independent-minded men and women who had been doing their schoolwork in English ever since third grade. So when they signed the statement saying that they, along with Gill, had seen these objects, had seen these men walking on them, they were not, they knew perfectly well what they were, what they were signing. So this is a really quite baffling case, except that it isn't, except that it is. Okay, we know what Gill and his parishioners were looking at. They, they mapped the location of these luminous UFOs on a, a sky, a map of the sky, and they turn out to be the planets Jupiter and Saturn, and the bright stars Rigel, and another one, I don't remember the exact name, it's something Cantaurus. All right, so we know what they were looking at, but it wasn't what they saw. What they saw was discs with male human beings. Why is it always discs? Walking. It's always discs. Oh, yeah, why is it discs? Is there <laughs> any aerodynamic reason why we should fly in discs? I don't think so. But Jung explains the disc is the mandala, the circular representation of wholeness. And that was what Gill and his parishioners needed badly because they were restive under the leadership of a European, Australian priest. And there were considerable tensions between them. And I think that when they looked at these stars and they saw discs, what they were seeing was mandalas come from inside them in order to heal the rift among them. And this took the form of religious visions with men who glow as angels do. And Gill waffled back and forth on this. They were men, he says, but then he also says, I thought they were angels. And he tried to get them to land so they could all have dinner together. And here, as someone who spent a lot of time reading the Bible, my mind goes back to Abraham inviting his three angelic visitors to come have dinner with him. So I'm saying that what they saw was a religious vision evoked by heavenly bodies seen perhaps under unusual atmospheric conditions, answering to the psychic needs of Gill and his parishioners, and drawing not only on the Western tradition of UFOs, which Gill knew about, but also on native New Guinea beliefs in sky beings, who come down 
and interact with their children on earth. And the, those two together created a vision which might have healed the rifts in that community. As it turned out, it didn't. A couple of months later, Gil was no longer in New Guinea. But I can see what the impulse was to the creation of that vision. Is there any chance that anybody was taking psychedelics in a sense? Because I found the best way for me to rationalize a lot of myths or stories. There was a hev heavy amount of psychedelics that have been included through major stories or major things throughout history. So I kind of look at it like every time I've heard people take DMT or take some type of thing, they talk about uh, dimensional beings or something that they see, which sounds to me like a group high. Like if you have 25 people and you all do acid or you all do some type of psychedelic drug together, you're going to end up seeing the same thing. Taking peyote, for instance, the Native Americans would see these giant visions and they would all have this group high type thing. Well, can you have a group high without the drugs? Because remember that the drugs don't create anything. They evoke what's already inside you. That's why they're called psychedelics. That from the Greek words for spirits, psyche, and de, de, lo, de lo, to make plain. They make plain whatever is already there inside you. So I doubt very much if the if Gil and the Papuans were on were on drugs, but I don't think it would make any difference if they were. Because either way, it would be something that was coming from inside them, evoked by an actual physical object. I mean, you know, Jupiter and Saturn are real physical objects. They're just not about to land and have dinner with us. I think there's like a $10 app called the CE5. Have you ever heard of that? It's used to like, yeah, it's used to like channel or summon aliens. They say that you can contact them through this app. I haven't got it because it's $10 and I'm not spending $10 on that. Um, that's just too much for anything on my phone or any app to get. But is is that kind of like the same thing of being able to channel or being able to summon something it's with inside yourself, but it's kind of like it dives into the realm of metaphysics. Like people can um, remote view or people can, um, what is it? Lucid dream. It's in that sense. It's powerful in that you can get a form of meditation and feel yourself literally floating out of your body. Uh, kind of like that, right? G getting in touch with this frequency that's able to channel this thing out of you, which is where we get um, the UFO. Yeah, assuming we keep in mind that it's channeling it out of us and not an external thing into us. I mean, here, I, do, I, I don't think that, I, I really don't think Gil and the Papuans were trying in any way consciously to evoke these visions. I mean, that's, one of the things that strikes me about UFO experience is that they come upon you more or less spontaneously, answering to what you need to see. 
kind of like a guardian uh, angel which has been known to help in times like it's it's like the harry potter room i would say which is like it only shows itself to you when you when you're uh in need of it not when you're looking for it maybe i haven't read the harry potter book so i don't i, 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 I can't yeah <laughs> I, uh, I i can't make a comparison but i think it is something that comes out when you that that, that you see it when there's something in you that needs to see it or to you to uh, as jung would say something that you are repressing something that you refuse to look at that nevertheless has to jump up and wave to you and say here i am and even though i use the language of something as though it's different from you i see it as something still inside of you i mean is your unconscious different from you or is it you well it's you but it's not the you as you know it in your waking experience that comes to you in your dreams so that would explain good and bad experiences that people have because i've heard like good experiencer stories and also bad experiencer stories where they feel like they've been kidnapped from their home even though they weren't harmed it was just an, an invasion of their privacy so that might be something that somebody's dealing with that they're manifesting they're not really it might be a bad experience like you were saying it might not be something good something they're internalizing and this is the way that their body gets it i mean that's been known to happen people um who have lost the love of their life, married 70 something years, not even a week in between one death, there's another death because their heart can't take it. They're hurting and they're not, if they're not vocalizing their pain, they're not getting over it. And that's how they internalize it. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, the, the relations, I don't know if we really understand it, that the relations between the mind and the body between, I mean, we know, you know, uh, uh, just uh, check your blood pressure and you know that in different circumstances and you know how your uh, your body reacts to your mind's concerns. So, yeah, I think all of this is involved. But, you know, let's, you know, you mentioned psychedelics. So let's go to the king of psychedelics, or not quite the king of psychedelics, but somebody who's very much involved with them named John Lennon. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that in 1974, he was separated from his wife, Yoko Ono, and he was living in a Manhattan penthouse with his girlfriend, Mae Pang, whom, who had been his assistant and whom he began having an affair with, largely at Yoko Ono's insistence. It appears that neither Lennon nor Pang really wanted to get into this affair, but for some reason that I've never understood, Yoko Ono manipulated them into it. And uh, they were living together in, as I said, a Manhattan penthouse. And one hot August evening in 1974, uh, uh, Pang had just finished uh, showering. She was toweling herself off. And Lennon called to her, May, May, come out here. And she went out to the terrace where, where uh, Lennon was. And there was a dome disc a, a couple hundred feet away, just moving leisurely right by them. She went into the, 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 she found a camera and she went out and she took a whole roll of photos of this object. 
And when the photos were developed, they turned out to be completely blank. Now, I infer two things from this. One is that there was nothing physically there. Because if it was, there would have, it would have appeared on the, uh, in the photographs. And the second is that, that they didn't make up this story because if they had been making it up and inventing it, they wouldn't have invented a detail that seemed to undermine it like, undermine it like this. So I assume that they had a genuine vision, or if you want to call it hallucination, go ahead, because I think it's the same thing. And we have to interpret its meaning in terms of their lives and in terms of what stresses they were under. Now, there is one very remarkable thing that if you read and watch video interviews with them, Again and again, they stress that they were both naked. Pang, because she'd just come out of the shower. Lennon, because he used to like to hang out around the apartment naked. Now, why is this important? If you, you know, most of the time, if we say, well, UFOs are visitors from outer space, then you and I happen to see one. It's just the accident. We happen to be there. But I don't, I, I don't believe that's true at all, that as the witnesses were part of the sighting, May Pang and John Lennon were part of that sighting and their nudity was part of the sighting. When is the last time we hear about a naked human couple confronted by a numinous presence? Well, it's Adam and Eve, right? In the Garden of Eden. Yeah. When when God is walking in the garden and the cool of the day, says the third chapter of Genesis, which is just when John and May saw their UFO. Okay, so that I think what we have here is an eruption of, I'm going to use the Jungian term because I've been very much influenced by Jung, of the archetypal image of the naked humans facing this numinous entity from beyond their awareness. Now, let me throw something else in here. Neither one, neither John nor May, was, at least at the time, particularly religious. I think May had a fairly strict upbringing, and perhaps she had been you know, taught by these Bible stories. But John certainly knew them, but was actively turning his back on them. Now, three years before, in 1971, John Lennon had recorded his most famous post-Beatles song, Imagine. Do you remember that? That yeah. imagine yeah. there's no heaven, it's easy if you try, yeah. no hell beneath our feet, above us only sky, as if there is no heaven. The heaven is completely disenchanted. It's just the sky, nothing up there. Well, the sky came and announced to Lennon and Pang that August evening, hey, you can't disenchant me quite that easily. There are mysterious entities in me that you haven't recognized. Now, don't take me too literally. It's not the sky that comes and does it and, and announces itself. It's something within 
the two witnesses that says, hey, you are trying to cut out a part of yourself, the religious part, the part that responds to the numinous. And I am going to show you it can't be done. Okay, is this, um, is it at least making sense what I'm saying? You may not yeah, want to believe yeah. it. Yeah, so my next question is, there's a large amount of people that believe that you have to be chosen, and that's why you get an experience. Is it So are you saying that this is inside everybody? Or because I mean, that would explain if it was just like out of nowhere that this type of situation happened was that maybe it was only that particular person and whatever that they were going through at the time pulled it out. But if everyone can experience this, that's why there's a giant, uh, I would say group hall of people that are looking through and scourging and trying to find information, which I mean, from if you want to say videotapes or recordings or um, what people have that I see Mick West and people trying to bunk all the time. Um, makes it a little bit more difficult to explain because if it's something with inside yourself that you're that's physically showing up, then yeah, you can get it on video, but you couldn't get it on video. Cause I mean, I could take a drug or something and I could see an imaginary hallucination right beside me of a cheetah and I could see it and it seems real. And it, I could think it, it would be attacking me and I could be hurting myself and not knowing, not knowing it because I could be tripping, but someone else would come in and just see me attacking myself. Like, what are you doing? I'm like, there's a cheetah on me. It's like, no, there's no cheetah there, but my brain is creating it. Um, there was a, a kid in my uh, town who jumped off of a giant hotel building on psychedelic drugs because he thought he could fly. Now, no, whatever he was experiencing was his own. It wasn't every, everybody else. So that's where I'm trying to understand it is how do we get this type of physical proof or what you would say, I would really call proof. I would say that lightly. Um, but these experiences, is this like, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to remember if there's any accounts of aliens or UFOs or any of these experiences before the Manhattan project, because it seemed like a lot of it, like I can get uh, maybe saying something for attention. I would, I wouldn't put John Lennon above that at all. Um, especially if you're going through something, you just want people to keep talking about you. But when it comes to before the Manhattan project, maybe the Adam and Eve one is a good one because that's before the Manhattan project. Are there any more accounts or things that you can explain? Like the flood, for instance, that's been known throughout multiple different religions about a great flood. Um, what a, anything else throughout history that could be really kind of tracked back to that could be something that someone channeled out. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I compared the experience of Gil and his parishioners with that of Abraham. Okay. That I think we do have, I mean, because I, I don't believe these the biblical stories happened, literally. I mean, the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden is a myth, which doesn't mean it's false. It means that it's true, but true, not in the literal historical sense, but true in the, what it conveys to us about who we are as human beings. That's why it's that. That's why no one can ever forget it. That it's the that that it touches on so much of what we are inside us. I don't think this or the flood or Abraham and his visitors are historic events. I think they're something that's wired within us to perceive, and that can come out with 
an external trigger like Jupiter and Saturn in the Gill case. And it's not, you know, that cheetah who attacks you when you're tripping. Mm -hmm. If somebody, if I come in and I just see you attacking yourself and I, and you, 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 and, and let's suppose you take out your uh, cell phone, your, 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 your smartphone, and you start photographing it and say, here, David, look, this is a real cheetah. Look, I've got it on the, on my on on photos on my phone then we look at the photos when you've come down from your trip and we don't see anything right any more than john and may saw anything on that film that they developed so now we do have those videos we're going back right briefly to ufos we do have those videos from uh, 2004 from 2014 and 2015 those three videos that everybody has uh, has seen on the internet probably dozens of times and i think actually mick west has explained them rather well yeah uh, so so these these go back to what you first said ufos were atmospheric phenomena in this case i think mick west explained that one that's going so zoom over the surface of the ocean as a weather balloon. It's apparent velocity being in fact the velocity of the jet from which it was photographed. And the really interesting one from uh, 2004, I think he saw as a, he explained as a distant jet. So I don't, I, I don't have the problem, which actually Jung did of trying to explain how psychic projections can appear on radar and be photographed. There are false radar blips. There are photographs of things that are just mundane objects. But at the same time, Jung was quite, quite deeply, profoundly right in seeing a reality beyond those accidents, a reality coming from us. Now, I've skipped over Betty and Barney Hill. And maybe we ought to come back to them. Let's because when, to you, that, yeah. you, when you speak of the uh, of the negative experiences, theirs was a very their, theirs was a very strongly negative one. Uh, they were they were a New Hampshire couple with one unusual feature. Uh, I guess I might as well tell you now. There's no point in in holding it off till the end. That uh, Betty was white and Barney was black. And remember, this was nine. The, the the their story, their UFO story, starts in 1961. Which wasn't when, acceptable for the time period. Uh, totally unacceptable. Uh, so uh, uh, they took a, a, a vacation trip to Canada, and it's worth keeping in mind that hardly more than six years before they took their trip, a, a black teenager named em Emmett Till was brutally lynched in Mississippi for supposedly making suggestive remarks to a white woman. Now here's a black man traveling with a white woman. And uh, they, they, they go to Canada and uh, they, they, uh, their finances start running low. So they decide to pull an all-nighter, drive back home through the White Mountains of New Hampshire. And they're followed by a peculiar light, which seems to move against the, uh, the, the, the pattern of stars. It was a clear night. Uh, and the light seems to be following them. And after that, the, uh, and they stop, they look at it through the binoculars, or Barney does, 
and he sees a disc with men behind the windows. And it's worth talking about what these men are. They're not big-eyed little men from other galaxies. The first one he sees is a red-headed Irishman who looks friendly, and then, then, but who then sort of morphs into a black-jacketed Nazi. Now, you would we might well ask, what is an Irishman and then a Nazi doing aboard an interplanetary vehicle? And Barney himself knows the answer that that Irish, he says, Irish people, he says, don't normally like Negroes. Uh, I'm using the language of the 1960s, don't normally like Negroes. So when I see a friendly one, I try to be friendly. And, you know, he, he, he's been worrying for the past several days for a long time. How are people responding to him and Betty being together? Uh, and uh, uh, this one is friendly. And then he's replaced by this uh, sinister looking Nazi. Clearly we're dealing with something that he's projecting, right? And then later after, after their experience, he starts having all sorts of physical symptoms, high blood pressure, uh, ulcers, uh, something, a, a really distinctly weird symptom in which a ring, a perfect ring of warts appears around his groin. They, both he and Betty keep thinking that there's something in their experience in the White Mountains, which are causing these symptoms. They, they keep making futile trips back, retracing their steps, trying to discover it. Finally, in 1964, they go to a Boston psychiatrist named Benjamin Simon, who's an expert in therapeutic hypnosis, and he, he hypnotizes them. And this is the this is the beginning of the whole that whole trope that you see and like you know I don't know if you saw the movie The Fourth Kind yeah but the you know where the hypnotist brings out the repressed experiences of these people except Simon wasn't looking for any UFO stories he didn't believe in UFOs didn't care about them he was just trying to to help Barney and. Both Barney and Betty started remembering how they'd been kidnapped, taken aboard the UFO, subjected to bizarre procedures on tables inside the UFO, asked fairly bizarre questions, and eventually released with the command that they would forget it all. And Barney, as these these memories started to emerge, he became so agitated, so terrified, that Simon later said, I was afraid he was going to throw himself out my office window. So clearly something real was coming out. Now, what was that something real? And in my book, Intimate Alien, The Hidden Story of the UFO, which I'm going to hold it up, Look at that beautiful yeah. cover. Yeah, it is a fantastic cover. I love it. The uh, Stanford University Press did just a, a fantastic job with this book. That in my book, I draw out the parallels between what Barney remembered experiencing that night in 1961 and what his ancestors must have experienced in West Africa in 
the 18th century, being abducted in the middle of the night, taken onto an alien ship, subjected to intrusive physical examinations. The, the UFO beings were very interested in teeth, Barney's teeth and Betty's teeth, which sounds completely ridiculous until you remember that in the 18th century, slave dealers were told, make sure you check the teeth before you buy anybody. The teeth are what will tell you how old or how young this piece of property is. Okay, that I think what we are dealing here is not merely in the Jungian sense, something unconscious coming out, but some sort of a transmitted memory of that ancestral trauma of being abducted into slavery by a descendant of slaves. And I conjectured in the book that Betty was a descendant of slave owners, and that was my conjecture. But since then, my friend Marty Kottmeyer has called my attention to a 1998 interview in which Betty is quite explicit. Yes, her ancestors were slaveholders. But, and, that, but why would she see a Nazi, or was it just uh, was it just her her husband that saw it? It was just her husband. Okay. But I think you know, I think that just as John and May, as lovers, shared this need for the reemergence of the numinous in mandala form this time and not in human form as in the book of Genesis. And just as Gil and the Papuans shared a need for these mandalas to appear to them, so Betty and Barney, who were, I mean, it's clear from their story how deeply they loved each other and how deeply they were bonded, that they shared the experience of this terrible trauma in which Betty's ancestors were the perpetrators and Barney's the victims. And perhaps it was that that they needed to bond them properly. And that was why they experienced it. Now, that was the first abduction. I think that they introduced it into the awareness of the nation. And then in the 1990s, the seed that they planted bore fantastic fruit. Mostly white people, entirely white people, I would say, experienced or re-experienced what we whites once inflicted upon our black fellow humans. And most of the time experienced it as trauma. Sometimes though, there have been black abductees. And I'll put the abductees in scare quote quotes because they experience it as an exhilarating experience of elevation. And perhaps the most famous of these black 
abductees was Louis, is Louis Farrakhan. I have so many thoughts running through my head. One, I really hope you're wrong because that means what are the future generations of kids going to be dealing with with the amount of trauma that we've put them through in the past two and a half years and even farther than that? Um, if that's going to seed, if that's a seed planning right there affecting the future, I don't know what that's going to lead to. It's not a life I want to see. Um, but it, it, it makes sense what you're talking about because I wonder if you can trace like when they started envisioning like being abducted by aliens that come into their home, which I've heard accounts of. Like, I wonder if you can trace when the Hollywood movies first landed that saucer and then something stepped out. If that seeded something else in there where people like the, the evolution of this thing has gone from something where seeing it at a distance to then 100 years or 200 years later being abducted and then not even being abducted, showing a closer presence and then slowly inched its way into society's mind in a sense, where now it's evolved into what it is today. I mean, even with the amount of phone videos or amount of experiencer stories out there, amount of people talking about this or amount that the government's talking about this, it's raising another group of seeds that are going to keep changing the narrative or keep changing it sooner or later you'll have people having full-on conversations with them and having them recorded on a podcast because they're evolving in such a sense it seems like over the generations and generations that it keeps getting closer and closer and closer um i've heard people say that that's them slowly trying to make contact and more people are becoming more open that's a possibility, but it's also a possibility with yours as well, too, this idea that there it's this seeded thing inside of us that just keeps growing, and it starts at these key moments throughout history. If one person sees a person talk about this type of story instead of you know passing the story off to the side, they go, this is interesting. I can get views on this, and they put it up on Washington Post or whatever, and the next you know, that person who sees that article spreads it to their friends, and that narrative starts to spread. It's kind of a lot like the Slender Man story. Yeah, I mean, you're raising, you're raising a wealth of issues here, one of them being the question of how Hollywood, how the movies interweave with this what is the role states of a movie like close encounters of the third kind mars attacks yeah 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 i think there's an ingrained fear that's been throughout our genetics long like around our ancestors times and our ancestors ancestors time that has been a survival mentality but also a question of who we are and we look to that thing on a bigger envision of what created us and i think that's the long answer that everyone's looking for and that's why this ufo topic is uh trending a lot of the times now because if there is a possibility before everyone was religious and now you have a lot of people that aren't super religious anymore more. So you're getting into a sense of people, you need something, you need something like religion in your life, you need a belief in something bigger than yourself. And I feel like this is the pursuit that everyone is kind of going after. And you can experience something negative, greater than yourself. I mean, look, we are, we have been for two years now, on the receiving end of an alien invasion. COVID, right? Not UFO. Alien as in virus, not alien as in extraterrestrial. But it is alien. It is alien. It's, it's, new, something, yeah. it's something that's burst upon us from a nature that seems to be going wild. Possibly that created seem, in a lab. Seems to, yes. Yeah, seems, <laughs> seems to be out of control. Look, there's a, 
I, I mean, I can send you the link after we finish talking, and I, I don't know if you want to post it, but there that that I don't know if you know if you know about the Colares Island incident mm -hmm. in 1977 in Brazil, where uh, marauding UFOs caused all sorts of diseases. Wait, what? Oh, you got to tell me about this. Come on. Uh, yeah. Uh, okay. I don't know how much time we've got. We got we got uh, plenty of time. I'm not in a rush. Okay. Yeah, that people saw uh, you, the UFOs coming from uh, uh, from the direction you often from the direction of the sea. It's a was an impoverished fishing village in uh, northeastern Brazil, and they uh, instituted kind of a reign of terror over uh, over this the people of this island. Uh, they were they they they. they uh, drained them they, they would hit them with the rays i think and drain them of blood now that's important detail because that's not standard ufo lore but it belongs to the myth and legend of the native people of this area of blood-sucking demons vampires so now we have the ufos stepping into that role and it's i, I mean it's a it's a very like so much else with connected with UFOs. It's it's very complex and it raises questions of the relationship between the mind and the body. Because on the one hand, I don't think these things had any real existence. I mean, look, if there if there were UFOs that were going to zap us from the sky, uh, they wouldn't have hit, you know, some uh, small place in northeastern brazil uh some four nearly 40 some 45 years ago and not done anything since if they were going to damage our planet they could have done it much more dramatically and yet at the same time i think that these physiological effects were real and that perhaps that, that there is a way in which your 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 hallucinations of such experiences can produce physiological effects. But I, interested, I, I introduced Colares not for itself, but for something else, that I can send you the link to a video, which is a sort of a dramatic reenactment of the Colares incidents that was posted to uh, YouTube in August of 2021. And it shows the UFO as a globe with dozens or so, a dozen or so spidery legs and i'm darned if that doesn't look to me like a coronavirus hmm. yeah you have to how long is the video it's about 20 minutes about say i was going to play it on the show but we don't have we don't have 20 minutes to play it. yeah send it to me i'll check it out for sure i'm definitely interested in this like i said you had probably one of the most interesting um idea or concepts of uh the ufo thing that i've ever seen uh mostly because everyone I, I think is uh on this on the page of like it's either government tech which i thought it was i still kind of question a little bit just because i mean do you have any answers for the government talking about it like it's 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 scaring some people in a sense that there's something that could be from another universe watching them um i think okay I was actually asked, there's a, uh, uh, I had to answer a questionnaire for a Dutch magazine that's doing an article about, uh, about my book. Uh, 
And that they asked, what, you know, what about the, what the military has been doing recently? You know, like the, the, uh, the Pentagon issued that eight-page report in last June uh, that was required by, uh, by Congress with a, 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 as part of its COVID relief bill. Uh, and I, I said that the military is the tail being wagged by the cultural dog. I, I, I don't think that, uh, that our military uh, agencies are, are taking much of an independent interest in UFOs. But I do think that, that not only is the culture fascinated by it now, but there are certain, I, I detect a certain political correlation. And it's not the one that's often seen. I mean, a lot of people, I think Jason Colavito is the one who comes to mind, sees UFOs as connected with right-wing conspiracy theories. Yeah, that's mostly uh, any conspiracy theorist gets locked in with right-wing for some reason. Yeah. Uh, I think the current wave of UFO interest is mostly driven by the center-left. And I think it is in part a reaction against Donald Trump and an expression of the anxiety. You know, I've, I've talked a couple of times so far about collective death, the collective death that climate change in the view of many people, particularly those who don't like Donald Trump, is menacing us. And I think that is a cultural anxiety that we find represented symbolically in the UFO. And now COVID, which just sort of sprang at us as seemingly out of nowhere, yeah. I think is playing into that with its with its terrifying alienness. It's horrible that most of uh, all the problems that we face right now, or even any problems that's been happening the past few years, are everything's getting so political now. It's every, it seems like everyone's interested since they were, you know, sitting inside lockdowns. Like the only thing, oh, you watched all your shows on Netflix, might as well get into politics. Um, it really sucks because it's hard to find something deeper under the surface of that when, you know, you, you hear some, so much about politicians and social media allows you to label someone as such. But, you know, social media has amazing benefits to it as well. Social media helped me come across you, um, your book as well, too, that I recommend people out there listening are able to go get a copy as well, too, which I'll link your site in the description. But if you have your links or anything where people can find your book on Amazon or wherever it's located, if you want to say them off right now to people listening um, to this end of the episode? Well, I think one place that I would recommend people get the book is from Stanford University Press itself. Uh, I, I, I mean, it would take, take me a couple minutes to dig, up, uh, to, to dig up the links, and I don't know if uh, you want to do that, but perhaps when you post this to the web, you I'll, can I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll link it all in the description. I'm going to find all your links, but usually it just helps if someone's listening in their car or something. Yeah. They'll be like, oh, uh, uh, Dave, I'll look up David on Twitter. I'll look up David on uh, his site website or something like that. Okay, well, my website, actually, that's probably the simplest, would be uh, David Halperin. That's D-A-V-I-D-H-A-L uh, as in Leon, 
P is in Peter, E-R-I-N, uh, one word, at David Halperin dot net. Dot net. And uh, ju just uh, you, 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 you can find links to get the book there. Or you can uh, you could go, you could Google David Halperin Stanford University Press and that'll bring up uh, that'll bring up the book. Or I'm going to put in a plug for a really neat local business in uh, I'm, I'm in Durham, North Carolina, but this is right down the road in Chapel Hill. It is called Flyleaf Books. And if you Google them and Google my name, you should find the, 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 you, you'll find how to get my book from them. That, that was where I was supposed to launch on March 24th, 2020. Of course, the launch was canceled. Yeah, COVID. Oh, yeah. Damn COVID. Um, oh, darn. Yeah. <laughs> David, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. I'd love to have you back on again and chat again. Um, I'm going to link everything in the description for everyone listening. And thanks for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast.